afternoon, and welcome to today's event, The Libertarian Roots of the Tea Party. I'm John Samples, director of the Cato Institute's Center for Representative Government. First thing I'd like to do is to ask everyone to silence your cell phones or any kind of electronic devices that make noise uh, so we don't have a, uh, something that happened down the line, a surprise. Welcome also all to all who are viewing this event on C-SPAN uh, or via streaming video. For those who are not here with us, I'd like to point out that you can join the discussion and send a question for the Q&A portion, which will, uh, in about an hour or so, we will hit. Uh, the Q&A portion of our program using the Twitter hashtag TPRoots. That's TPRoots, if you're listening out uh, in the real world there. Uh, that hashtag and info about this and other Cato events can be found in our events webpage at Cato.org. If you happen to be watching one of our events for the first time, the Cato Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank here in Washington that promotes the ideals of free markets, individual liberty, and peace. That means, unlike both major political parties, we support both economic freedom and social freedom. And the question we are going to address today is to what extent the Tea Party movement shares those libertarian values in toto. We have with us today the authors of a new Cato study of uh, Tea Party opinion that I think is actually a breakthrough and certainly brings information to the table that has been missing. And that is our study, The Libertarian Roots of the Tea Party. You certainly can find free copies here at the event. Or if you're at home, you can go to our website, cato.org, and download a copy for free. The authors are David Kirby and Emily McClintock-Eakins. And today, we're going to turn first to David Kirby. David Kirby is Vice President of Development and manages Freedom Works, growing fundraising operations. He's also a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. Before joining Freedom Works, David served as campaign executive director for the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University, where he led a multi-million dollar fundraising campaign for IHS's 50th anniversary. Um, David is also executive director of America's Futures Foundation, the premier organization for young conservative and libertarian leaders, and his misspent youth, David, intern for Senator Ted Kennedy. <laughs> David's publications include many on our topic today, The Libertarian Vote, The Libertarian Vote in the Age of Obama, both of which appear with Cato and both of which you can find at Cato.org, and now The Libertarian Roots of the Tea Party. His writing, as with many of our people today on our panel, has appeared in all the leading national magazines on politics, Politico, National Review Online, and other publications. And his research has been cited by The Economist, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and so on. David holds a master's degree in public policy from the Kennedy School at Harvard. A college debater, he also has a bachelor's degree in rhetoric from Bates College. So we will hear some rhetoric today. David? Thank you, John. So I want to start with a story about the mashup of libertarians and conservatives in the Tea Party. FreedomWorks recently hosted a big Tea Party rally in Dallas, Texas called Free Pack. I want you to imagine 16,000 people packed in a hockey arena. Two speakers back to back sort of tested the ideological boundaries of the audience with their speeches. The first speaker was C.L. Bryant. He is a conservative, pro-life, black Baptist minister. 
And in full preacher mode, he talked to the audience and warned them about the dangers of the progressive policies in the entitlement state. And the crowd went wild, standing ovation. Right up next was Harmon Caslow, who is the producer of Atlas Shrugged Part Two, a libertarian objectivist. And Harmon told the audience about the, how the central planners and villains of Ayn Rand's novels were sort of coming alive in the Obama administration, and the crowd went wild. Now, the point of this story is that a conservative pro-life Baptist minister and a libertarian objectivist Hollywood producer can share the stage at a Tea Party event, and as long as they stick to economics, the audience is like, right on. Now, they may disagree about the social issues on gay marriage, on abortion, uh, but that's not what they're there to talk about. This idea of libertarians and conservatives together in the Tea Party, focusing on fiscal issues and not focusing on their differences, is fundamental to what the Tea Party is all about. But you wouldn't know it from the popular press and academic work on the Tea Party. A lot of people on the left think the Tea Party is like a reincarnation of the religious right. But Emily and I want to argue, and we argue in our paper, uh, that the Tea Party has strong libertarian roots. I want to make three arguments. First, that the Tea Party is half libertarian. Second, that this libertarian energy of the Tea Party actually helped start the formation of the Tea Party coming out of the Ron Paul campaign. And third, that the Tea Party is actually changing the Republican Party in a more libertarian direction. So first, half the Tea Party is libertarian, but it's important to know how we define libertarian. So many of you in this room, you're here at Cato, you probably read Reason Magazine. I'm sure many of you have read Atlas Shrugged. Congratulations, you're the hardcore. If you uh, were offered the option for a pollster to say whether you're libertarian or not, you might say, yes, I'm libertarian. That means you're among maybe 2 to 4% of the public. There's a broader group of people who hold libertarian beliefs, but actually have never heard of the word libertarian. And it's actually that broader group that Emily and I are talking about. These people could be called fiscally conservative but socially liberal. They give questions that are different, they answer questions on polls that are different than liberals or conservatives. And polls show that this is between 15 and 20% of the American public, this broader group of libertarians. And that's who we're talking about in this paper and who we've looked at uh, in other research at Cato on the libertarian vote. So if you ask the question of, of tea, tea Party supporters, how many are libertarian? This chart shows three national polls that Emily and I put together uh, in 2010 that, uh, that looked at the Tea Party from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Gallup, as well as two local polls, one that Politico did and one that we did ourselves here at Cato. And what you see is that the Tea Party is split pretty evenly between people who are libertarian and people who are conservative across national polls and also locally. Now, libertarian Tea Partiers tend to be a little bit more independent, they tend to be less loyal to the Republican Party and more of a swing vote. Conservative Tea Partiers tend to be more loyal Republican voters. Now, both groups uh, differ on some issues, uh, immigration, gay marriage, and abortion. And interestingly, libertarians, they don't attend church as much. Uh, about 25% of libertarians will go to church once a week. At least that's what they tell, uh, tell pollsters, which is about what the average does among uh, the entire population whereas well above 50% of Tea Party conservatives go to church once a week. Uh, but both sides of the Tea Party, libertarians and conservatives, are similarly focused on the fiscal issues, on spending, on debt, on the Constitution, and they're worried about the next generation. 
So this is why the Tea Party has remained focused on the fiscal issues, like I described in that scene in Dallas, Texas. It's because that's where they agree. The moment you veer off onto the social issues, you lose half your membership. So the second argument I want to make is about the roots of this libertarian energy that's part of the Tea Party. Now, go back to 2008. Libertarians were mad as hell. After eight years of the Bush administration, the spending, the wars, um, the erosion of privacy through the Patriot Act, TSA, they were so mad that some libertarians even voted for the Democrats in spite in 2004 and 2006. But nothing was more frustrating to libertarians than the bank bailout in September 2008. This was when George Bush famously said, we have to save the free market by abandoning it. Uh, and what you will find in the data is that this moment was when libertarian anger shot through the roof and other conservatives began to join this, uh, this arguments about the increase in spending that libertarians had been making for many years before. So what I want to show you is how this is revealed in the data. Emily and I looked at a panel data set by the University of Michigan. And a panel data set's a little different than a normal poll. It's more like a medical trial. So basically, they start in 2008 with a group of about 3,000 respondents. And they follow those voters over a period of two years and ask questions at several different waves along the way. How angry are you at the Republican Party? How angry are you with George W. Bush? How much do you feel like people like you can affect government? And so on. In 2010, they asked about the Tea Party. So we can actually work backwards in time, knowing people who would <coughs> join the Tea Party and can see where they came from. And let's see how libertarians compare to conservatives. So this chart shows from 2008 through the 2000, beginning of 2009. And the top line, it may be a little hard to see with the colors, the top line is Tea Party libertarians. This next line is libertarians more general. And these bottom two lines are conservatives and Republicans more generally. What you see here is that libertarians were more than twice as angry at the Republican Party and only got more so, more angry as 2008 went along. This next slide shows the same pattern. This is anger towards George W. Bush. This top line is li uh, libertarians, and these bottom lines are Tea Party conservatives and other Republicans. Notice, interestingly, right at September 2008, that point, that flashpoint with TARP, is where anger spikes up for both Tea Party conservatives and Tea Party libertarians. The final slide may be a little busy, but this actually traces uh, uh, Tea Partiers from 2008 all the way through May 2009, the start of the Tea Parties. And this is a question about how much people can affect government. It sort of gets at that kind of edgy frustration that people were describing. The top two data points you see in the beginning here are, um, are libertarians. And notice, once again, around September 2008, anger spikes up. But interestingly, libertarian anger sort of stays at a high point through that early period of uh, the Tea Parties. And conservatives and other Republicans start to join libertarians in that anger. Well, this actually tracks with what we hear from Tea Partiers when we interview them. They say, look, we were part of the Ron Paul movement. We were so frustrated. We got involved. We did whatever we could. And then along the way, a lot of Republicans, conservatives, others began to join in the movement. Uh, interestingly, a lot of libertarians somewhat got, got a little frustrated that these other people were joining the party that they had helped start. Um, the reason why this is important is that this libertarian energy has actually helped the Tea Party right from the beginning stay focused on the fiscal issues. So the third argument I'd like to make is 
that the Tea Party is changing the Republican Party and making it more libertarian. So Tea Partiers are now about six in 10 of Republican primary voters. So they have a lot of sway, uh, first in policy and second in the direction of candidates. So on policy, many of you might have seen that the Republican National Committee's platform uh, passed 11 out of 12 of the Tea Party's freedom platform items, many of which included, or some of which included cutting spending, auditing the Fed, and studying the gold standard, which is a favorite of Ron Paul libertarians. I've also found it kind of interesting that politicians here in DC are starting to suck up to uh, libertarian Tea Partiers. Two amusing examples, uh, Orrin Hatch, who, uh, who survived a strong Tea Party uh, challenge in his own primary, decided to co-sponsor the Audit the Feld bill with who other than Rand Paul. Uh, another example of this is Mitch McConnell, minority leader. He actually co-hosted uh, co Ron Paul's going away party for, uh, for him in the House. He even hired Ron Paul's campaign manager. So you're starting to see establishment politicians try to come to more libertarian Tea Partiers the second way you're seeing the Tea Party change the Republican Party is in candidates. Now, the conventional political wisdom in primaries for the last two decades has been to win in a Republican primary, you have to emphasize the social issues, abortion and gay marriage. Not so anymore. Increasingly, you're seeing candidates emphasize the fiscal issues, de-emphasize the social issues, and win in Republican primaries and even win in general elections. Um, I call this strategy sort of functionally libertarian. But candidates aren't libertarian per se, but they campaign and legislate as if as libertarians would. So in the 2010 cycle, I'd put Senators Rand Paul, Pat Toomey, Mike Lee in this category. In this legislative cycle, I'd put candidates like Richard Murdoch, Jeff Flake, and Ted Cruz in this category. Now, these are all tough races for the general, but these candidates are pulling even in the polls and look like they might win. And of course, these candidates will hold strong positions on social issues and foreign policy, but that's not the way they're defining their campaign, and that's not the issue they're running on. So in conclusion, uh, the Tea Party's been around for almost four years now, and last week, Politico, in an arena chat, asked the question whether the Tea Party brand is poison. Well, the data shows that this isn't true. The Washington Post has been polling the Tea Party since February 2009, and they've showed a surprisingly stable uh, base of Tea Party supporters at an astonishing 42% of the public who would say that they support the Tea Party, and that's been stable. Interestingly, and you certainly wouldn't know this from the media accounts, CNN polling has actually showed an uptick of favorability for Tea Partiers through the 2012 election cycle. So the data show that half the Tea Party is libertarian and that the libertarian energy of the Tea Party has kept it focused on fiscal issues. But I'd go further. To the extent that Romney and other Republican candidates win this election, it's because they're acting more like Tea Partiers, not less. Because it's the issues that the Tea Party is focused on, about spending, about debt, about jobs, about the economy. And these are the very same issues that the majority of Americans are concerned about, including independence. So the Tea Party brand may fade or it may shift, but this libertarian impact will likely continue to be felt for many years to come. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, our next two speakers will be, I think it's fair to say, be counted among the most uh, well-known public intellectuals in America. The first of our speakers will be Jonathan Haidt, 
Jonathan he joined the New York University Stern School of Business in July 2011. He is the Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership based in the Business and Society Program area. Professor Haight is a social psychologist whose research examines the intuitive foundations of morality. His most recent book, as you may well know, is the New York Times bestseller, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. In that book, Haight offers an account of the origins of the human moral sense, and he shows how variations in moral intuitions can help explain the American cultural war between left and right. At Stern, he is applying his research on moral psychology to rethink the way business, business ethics is studied and, and integrate it into the curriculum. Before coming to Stern, uh, Professor Haight taught for 16 years at the University of Virginia, where he was giving three awards for outstanding teaching, including the Virginia Outstanding Faculty Awards. His first book was The, Hypo Happiest, uh, the Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom, an excellent book that I have read. His writings appear frequently in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and one has to say, writings about him appear quite frequently in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Professor Haight received a BA in philosophy from Yale University and an MA and PhD in psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Haight, welcome to Cato. <clears throat> Thanks so much, John. Uh, and and uh, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here at Cato. I've never been here before, but I've been reading and learning about libertarians uh, for a long time. I study the moral foundations of politics. Uh, my, my jumping off point for the talk today, let's see, oh, I use this to advance, I suppose. My jumping off point for the talk today is a little line in David and Emily's paper. Um, David alluded to this in, in his talk. Uh, As is typical with national polls, None of the three national polls offered respondents an option of self-identifying as libertarian. Everyone just assumes, well, either you're liberal or conservative, or maybe you're in between, but there's a single dimension is what everybody assumes. And they ask the question, well, what happens if you do? What do you learn if you allow libertarians to distinguish themselves from liberals and conservatives? Um, and as you, uh, you'll see in the paper, if you read their paper, uh, you find that there are big differences in their demographics, uh, libertarians are more educated, more male, less religious. Uh, you find big differences on social policy, as David just told you, uh, but not on economic policy. That's their, the area of overlap. But my question is, okay, but what about personality? What kinds of people are they? Not just what do they believe. What are their personality traits? I ask this because personality in psychology uh, or personality in politics, I should say, is the hottest area in political psychology. Ever since George Lakoff's book in the late 90s, and then later on, uh, twin studies showed that if you take identical twins separate at birth, and you know that one is conservative, and his identical twin raised elsewhere, is much more likely than chance to be a conservative, or vice versa for liberal. Because your genes make your brain, your brain has certain traits, those traits make you just more responsive to liberal arguments, perhaps, or to conservative arguments. So your personality doesn't dictate your final politics, but it kind of nudges you in one direction or another. But all people talk about is liberal and conservative. Short answer to summarize all these books, conservatives are defective, they were beaten as children, they're afraid of death, and I forget what the other reasons are, but it's basically all their fault. Uh, now, what about libertarians? Well, <clears throat> 
um, there's good reason to think that libertarians and, and conservatives are going to be very, very different sorts of people. Uh, as David referred to, Orrin Hatch survived a challenge and later said of those libertarian Tea Parties, these people are not conservatives, they're not Republicans, they're radical libertarians, and I'm doggone offended by it. I despise these people. All right, this isn't just that they differ on social policy. This is they're different sorts of people, uh, and uh, he doesn't like these sorts of people. Now, I happen to uh, run or co-run with my colleagues a website called yourmorals.org uh, where people can come, they can take, we've had about 60 or 70 studies up on the site at various times, and when people come, before they get to this page, they register, you give us a little bit of demographic information, and unlike most national surveys, we don't force you to say where you are in a one to seven scale. Most We say here's the one to seven scale, most people place themselves along it, but um, and so the data I'll show you today is going to be grouping the people who chose very liberal, liberal, or slightly liberal. Those will always be in the blue bars that I'll show you. Uh, slightly conservative, conservative, or very conservative. Those will be in the red bars that I'll show you. But for people who don't want to pick one of those, we let them say, don't know, not political, or libertarian, or even other. So we only want to put people into a box if they willingly put themselves into that box. And then we'll see how their personalities differ. <clears throat> uh, the sample that I'll tell you about, this is not a representative sample, so the numbers that I tell you can't be taken as the number for this group in America, but the differences between our groups are robust. We've compared them to nationally representative samples. Uh, so for this sample, this is 130,000 people, most of whom are liberals. That's who comes to our, our website mostly. That's who does web research mostly. Uh, but we have a lot of libertarians in our data. It's about 10 or 12%, so an oversample of libertarians at our site compared to uh, nationally representative samples. And 20,000 conservatives. Our libertarians are overwhelmingly male. Now, even nationally, what is the ratio of... In, in your data of... Something like 65%, yeah. But, so about two-thirds of libertarians are male. In our sample, it's four-fifths, so oversampling or overrepresented. So that's the data I'll be showing you. So here's the data. Um, we had about 40 or 50 studies where we could compare liberals, conservatives, and libertarians. And we, to publish it, we had to just pick about 15 of them. And to publish that, we had to simplify it. We broke it up into three sets of studies all around a common theme. Uh, now, I know Ayn Rand does not speak for all libertarians, but she sure does speak a lot and uh, <laughs> says lots of quotable things. And so uh, here's one thing she says about altruism. If any civilization is to survive, it is the morality of altruism that men have to reject. So do libertarians reject altruism? Well, on the left, altruism is most of morality, which would mean that liber uh, libertarians reject morality. Our hypothesis was that libertarians will reject almost all the moral values, or at least they will endorse them less strongly than liberals or conservatives, except for liberty. Here's what we find. <clears throat> Our main instrument is called the Moral Foundations Questionnaire. We have a variety of questions about five moral foundations, care, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And what you see here is that libertarians in the black bars in the middle of each triad score actually low on everything. So like Conservatives, they are low on care and compassion. Uh, Will Wilkinson once said, libertarians, well, they're basically liberals who lack bleeding hearts. And there is some truth to that. Um, so at least here, on they're, they're low on care, compassion, those sorts of issues, along with conservatives. As you see, the black and red bars are very similar there. They're low on fairness. But here, fairness is uh, more about equality. Later on, we changed it so that fairness is more about proportionality, and then things differ. But in this way, 
libertarians are like conservatives. However, when we look at these more socially conservative foundations of loyalty, authority, and sanctity, now libertarians are indistinguishable from liberals. They don't care a lot about patriotism, group loyalty, respect for authority, uh, sense of sanctity or purity, protecting the flag, all those sorts of social issues that David said there's a difference on. You see that here. So the bottom line is that libertarians can side with either side. They can look out at various issues and say, hey, we're just, you know, or I should say, either side can claim them uh, because there are areas of match, but they don't fit properly with, with either side of the, of the one-dimensional spectrum. Now, after we did this, this research, we, we thought, and that was in part from reading um, uh, um, David's work, his other writings and writings from Cato on libertarians and what, uh, what libertarians stand for, we realized, well, liberty is a basic value that we didn't include in our original, original set. When we made up some items to tap conceptions of liberty, valuations of liberty, um, we found, uh, we collected a lot of data on that, and then we did a factor analysis to figure out what are the different subtypes of liberty? We found two major subtypes, economic liberty and lifestyle liberty. Items are up there as representative items. And what we found when we ran, uh, ran these items on thousands and thousands of people are that libertarians are indeed high, high on both these kinds of liberty. They, they, they uh, value lifestyle liberty more even than do liberals. That's here. Um, so liberals and libertarians can side together on gay rights, uh, fighting the drug war, things like that. Conservatives are the odd man out. Uh, but when it comes to any sort of economic liberty, suddenly uh, liberals are almost at the, not at the floor, but they're very, very low. They really don't think there are these major inviolable rights to economic liberty, whereas libertarians and conservatives do. And that, of course, is the area of overlap uh, that David was talking about, David and Emily are talking about. <clears throat> so, so these are sort of moral attitudes. Uh, you could call them personality if you want, but now let's get more deeply into personality. Uh, Ayn Rand. Every aspect of Western culture needs a new code of ethics, a rational ethics, as a precondition of rebirth. Uh, libertarians uh, seem proud of the fact that they are rational, analytical, less swayed by emotion. And we find that that is indeed the case. The most important scale, the most revealing one, I think, in our whole paper, is uh, it's a personality variable that comes from Simon Baron Cohen, uh, the empathizing, systemizing scale. He has a whole bunch of items that give you a score on <clears throat> one trait is called uh, systemizing, which is the drive to understand the variables in a system and how those variables govern the behavior of the system. So if you like to understand subway maps, spreadsheets, uh, any sort of chess, any sort of complex system, if you enjoy doing that, that's, you're high on systemizing. Empathizing is the drive to identify the emotions that another person is experiencing and to respond with an appropriate emotion. Um, so there is a big sex difference here. Men are generally higher on uh, systemizing. Women are generally higher on empathizing. And what we find um, is that libertarians are, in a sense, the most masculine out there. And this is true even when we analyze only the men, separate all the men and women, just look at men. Libertarian men are the highest on systemizing of any of the three groups, and they are the lowest on empathizing. Same thing for women. In fact, libertarians are the only group whose systemizing scores, in absolute terms, whose systemizing scores, you can't quite see it, are actually higher than their empathizing scores. Um, and this reflects a lot of things happening. Many have pointed to the feminizing of the Democratic Party since the 70s. Uh, it's not just that it's gotten more female, it's that it's gotten more feminine. Uh, this might be part of the growing separation between liberals <laughs> and libertarians in the last several, several decades. Um, <clears throat> okay, 
there are a whole bunch of other studies in the, in the paper, but to summarize, I can just tell you like this. If it's a measure of emotion, libertarians are probably the lowest of the three groups. Um, if it's a measure of reasoning, rationality, they're the highest. So need for cognition. Uh, we give some, some logic problems where if you go with your gut feelings on it, you'll get it wrong. But if you think carefully and analytically, you'll get it right. Libertarians score highest. Conservatives, lowest. Um, tolerance of ambiguity and openness. And all those traits, libertarians are, are the highest. Uh, on emotions, uh, almost every emotion measure that we use, compassion, disgust, sensitivity, gratitude, libertarians are the lowest. And again, this is within gender. So just looking at libertarian men or just looking at libertarian women compared to other men and women. There's one exception. There's only one emotion uh, that we have measured on which libertarians are higher. It's one called reactance. Uh, items on the scale are things such as I find contradicting others stimulating. <laughs> um, it makes me angry when another person is held up as a model for me to follow. And this is my favorite. When something is prohibited, I usually think that's exactly what I'm going to do. So libertarians do have emotional reactions when people infringe on their liberty or somehow manipulate them to go a certain way. They rear up to say, no, don't tell me to do that. Very, very different from social conservatives. Uh, third, um, how do libertarians relate to others? Uh, if libertarians are more cerebral and less emotional, you might think that this will impact their relationships, and indeed it does. Ayn Rand says, to say I love you, one must first know how to say the I. She took a rather dim view of these sappy portrayals of romantic, passionate love. Oh, I live for you, I long for you. Uh, so we hypothesized that libertarians would be more individualistic and less connected to other people <clears throat> than either liberals or conservatives, and that's indeed what we find. The, the major measure of personality uh, that is widely used is called the Big Five. It measures uh, these five traits, openness to experience. Do you like new ideas? Do you come out to hear intellectual talks? You're probably high on openness to experience. Libertarians and liberals are really, really high. This is why they encounter each other so often at cultural events. They like to go to the same sorts of things. Uh, conservatives are low. Uh, but now let's look at the three traits that are really associated with sociability. So on the, on the left, you see the data for extroversion. How much do you just like being with people? You're energized by being with people. Well, liberals and conservatives are identical to each other. Libertarians are low. They're more introverted. They're not as oriented towards socializing. The second set of bars is agreeableness. How nice, warm, friendly, agreeable, how easy is it to get along with you? Liberals and conservatives are equal. Libertarians are low. Third set of bars, conscientiousness. How much do you feel the pull of obligations because you need to do things for people? Something needs to be done. Here, conservatives are the highest. Uh, libertarians are the lowest, but they're, not, they're pretty close to liberals. So on this major measure of personality, the gist is libertarians are really curious, open-minded people but they're not that focused on other people. They want to learn, but they're not that focused on getting along with others. Um, one last scale I'll show you, and then I'll close up. Uh, this one is quite was a little surprising to me. Uh, these are questions about how much do you have warm, tender feelings for members of, for your romantic partner on the left, for your family, for your friends, or for just people in general? And what we find is that conservatives uh, score the highest of the three groups on family. That's not surprising. They talk, you know, nation and family. Um, liberals score the highest on generic other. Liberals claim to feel a lot of compassion and love for just general others. 
actually they claim to feel more love for general others than for their own family. That's kind of weird. Uh, but liberals are universalists. Liberals tend to be focused on uh, their universalists. Libertarians are low on every single one. Libertarians, by self-report at least, claim to love their parents less than do liberals and conservatives. Uh, so, <clears throat> in summary, uh, libertarians value liberty more than either liberals or conservatives. Libertarians rely upon reason more and emotion less than either liberals or conservatives. They are more individualistic and less connected to other people than either liberals or conservatives. Uh, the implications, and this is my last slide, are that libertarians and conservatives are a very odd couple indeed. In our data, actually, libertarians are a little bit more similar to liberals than they are to conservatives. But they are uniting politically with conservatives nowadays in the Tea Party because they have a common enemy. They're united by a devotion to economic liberty and in particular, I think, an opposition to the welfare state for very different reasons, I believe. Libertarians hate the welfare state because it is constantly infringing on one person's liberty to give positive liberty or help to another group. Conservatives, I believe, hate the welfare state because they think it saps self-reliance, character, moral fiber, devotion to God, family, all those other things. So I think even their reason for hating the welfare state is different. But as the Arab <laughs> proverb says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, so that's it. Thank you. It's hard not to sit here and hear that and think, all you people out there and all you people in this building, that's about you. Right? <laughs> the, uh, testify the accuracy. Our second uh, renowned public intellectual today is Jonathan Rauch, who is a longtime Washington journalist who, among other things, won the 2010 National Headliner Award for magazine columns. He's a guest uh, scholar at Brookings, uh, the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor of National Journal and The Atlantic. He's written several books, including Gay Marriage, Why It Is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America, published by Times Books. And I must say, I wonder how many of you have had the experience I've had with this particular book, is coming across a person who you took to be fairly conservative culturally and otherwise, and saying, you know, as one did to me, you know, I'm for gay marriage for the reasons that John Rauch puts out in his book on gay marriage, in a world where people's minds don't often change. I've often remarked how this particular book has had a, a surprising effect on people that, I, that I've come across. He's also written other books, uh, including a book on uh, Government's End, which was a revised version of an earlier uh, book about why Washington has stopped working, uh, and also Kindly Inquisitors, the new, attack on, new attacks on free thought. And for many of you, you also know him from his 12-year uh, uh, position as a writer of the, the column Social Studies in National Journal, which we all look forward to. And he's writing now regularly in The Atlantic, among other places. And in fact, he's written for every major publication you can think of. John was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, and graduated in 1982 from Yale University. Please welcome John Rauch. Thank you very much, John. I, I come to these things for the introductions. <laughs> um, and thank you all. Uh, thanks especially to uh, David for that marvelous presentation. My job is to amplify it just a little bit from a slightly different point of view. I have the privilege of being both a journalist and a uh, scholar at the Brookings Institution in Governance Studies, 
where when the Tea Party emerged, one of the things that was heavily debated in the hallway was, so what is this phenomenon? Are these just partisan Republicans pretending not to be, or are they something new, you know, a genuinely independent movement? Um, the other axis of that debate, are they hard-right conservatives? You know, are they basically Sarah Palin and so forth, or are they something new, a genuine grassroots libertarian movement, which isn't something we'd seen much of in America? Um, David Kirby performs a great service by shattering the myth of the monolithic Tea Party. If I had to summarize our two prior presentations in a headline, a simplistic headline, which of course is my job, as a journalist it would be David saying that the Tea Party is, Tea Partiers are not monolithic, and Jonathan saying Tea Partiers are not lovable. Libertarian uh, <laughs> 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 ones. <laughs> What, what David finds that I think makes his paper a landmark and a breakthrough and well worth downloading and reading um, is that he finally puts the pieces together so that you can see, it, see a lot of it in one place. This problem was like the wise men and the elephant. You know, the, the three blind men, one said it's a tree trunk, one said it's a snake, and, and so forth. Well, it's both. And David nails this by finding that the Tea Party movement is about 50% social conservative and 50% libertarian, with the energy in this movement waxing and waning from the libertarian side, but a lot of it coming, especially originally, from the libertarian side. His findings squared with my own. In 2010, I decided to go out, and because I had the privilege of being a journalist, I could actually investigate this by talking to Tea Parties and looking at a lot of data as well as a lot of human beings. So I'm going to amplify what David said a bit by showing you what I found, which I still think is awfully relevant. Um, however, instead of talking primarily about ideology, I'd like to talk about brand and style, because I think that is where the distinctive features of the Tea Party lie. And this is a dimension, I think, that hasn't quite been captured yet today, which is there is a sense in which the Tea Party movement is distinctive from everything else, distinctive from ordinary libertarians, and distinctive from ordinary conservatives, which makes it stand out in politics and has made it, in some ways, a distinctive and potent force. To show you what that is, I'd like to begin with a few couple of slides showing you where I believe the Tea Party movement originates. Uh, this is Pew data. It's a very basic chart. It shows the American um, electorate by position. Uh, there is no libertarian category, but here there doesn't need to be. As you see, these categories are pretty stable over the years, but in, 19, sorry, in 2007 and 2008, if you're looking carefully, something interesting starts to happen, which continues uh, into 2009 and becomes quite pronounced, which is a drift of conservatives out of the Republican camp and into the independent camp. This is a phenomenon that I think of as debranding. These are people who are conservatives, but who are rejecting the conservative label, and for some reason or another, they are... Uh, thinking of themselves increasingly as independents. Another way to look at this brand decline, um, which perhaps comes out even more clearly, is if you simply look at party affiliation for Americans as a whole, again, you see stability over the 10-year period, but Republicans in a gradual period of decline uh, in George W. Bush's second term, and Republican leaners... Um, really gaining market share very rapidly. By the standards of American politics, what you see happening there in 2008, 9, and 10 is really a very large increase. Republican leaners are independents who don't say they're Republicans, 
but lean Republicans in terms of their voting behaviors, their political preferences, and so on. So for some reason, you see this big batch of people who are conservative, but who no longer say they're Republican. They're embracing the independent label. Well, maybe you say, so what? Um, this is you know, just labeling. It's not important. What are these people like? Um, here are a few questions. There are a lot more where this came from, but I'll give you just a couple. Here's what's interesting about this group, and it won't surprise you if you've been listening to David Kirby. They move both Republicans and Republican leaners. This is the group that does not, I call them debranded Republicans, um, are shift very sharply to the right between 1997 and 2010 on economic issues. Government has gone too far in regulating business. Look at those two red lines. The bright red is Republican. The lighter red is independent, lean Republicans. Government is a major threat to our personal rights and freedoms. You see this huge rightward shift. Um, Democrats and Democratic leaners shift a little bit to the liberal side. Independents shift a little bit to the conservative side. But clearly, the giant movement in the electorate over this period is a very sharp rightward movement among Republicans and Republican leaners. And know what's going on here. In terms of the rate of change, independent leaners are swinging harder than Republicans are swinging. They're actually turning right faster. And in many cases, for instance, government is a threat to our freedom. They're winding up to the right of Republicans. Now note, these are not coincidentally libertarian questions. Government programs should be cut back. Same pattern, hard rightward swing. Um, independent uh, leaners, Republican leaners come out to the right. Government deserves poor ratings. It speaks for itself. If I show you comparable slides on social issues, the pattern looks very different. You don't see these Republican leaners to the right of Republicans. So what's emerging here is a group of political people who are very conservative on economic issues, if anything to the right of the Republicans, who have shifted very far to the right, and who do not brand themselves as Republicans. I would assert that if you were a good political analyst and you were locked in a room and you couldn't read any of the headlines for the last two years, all you could look at were polling data like this, you would see this and you would say, there must be something out there happening like the Tea Party, or if not, something very much like it, because that is clearly what's going on in the political base. So... Um, are they just more of the same? Republicans in drag, which you could conclude, or libertarian Republicans in drag who you know, reject the Republican label but otherwise are the same thing. Some of my liberal friends made that case and still make it. You know, they're just basically Republicans who pretend not to be necessarily. Um, I disagree with them. But I think to find out why, you have to look at style as well as at substance. And this gets actually to Jonathan Haidt's work on personality. Often how you believe is just as important as what you believe, if not even more important. So let me give you three important dimensions on which I think Tea Partiers are collectively different. First, compromise. Um, this is a good basic question by Pew on attitudes toward compromise. Do you admire leaders who stick to their position or who make compromise? The actual question is a little more complicated than that. But that's basically it. Um, 2010 data hasn't changed very much, uh, though I haven't been able to find a replication of this question, unfortunately. Democrats favor compromise. 
by a quite substantial margin. Um, independents are more on the fence. I don't show them here, but tend to favor compromise. Republicans, very different. They do not like compromise, but now look at Tea Parties. This is remarkable. That's about as strong as you can get in America to something that looks like a firm consensus. They do not like compromise, and they reject politicians who do compromise, and they are quite distinct, even from Republicans, in the extent to which that is true. Um, and indeed, we know they will punish Republic, they, uh, politicians who compromise, which brings us to dimension um, number two on which they're different. They will publish Republicans who compromise. Again, Pew data. These are all data on attitudes toward Republican leaders, toward incumbents, how much you want new faces in government. They all test people's willingness to vote for a politician out of loyalty whether to the party or whether because that politician has been there for a while, um, and to vote, on the other hand, on wanting the incumbent ousted. This data is quite striking to me. In terms of disapproval of Republican leaders, um, Republican leaners, the energy driver, the motor behind the Tea Party, look more like Democrats than they do like Republicans. Now, that's remarkable. They are simply not loyal Republicans. Do they want their incumbent ousted? You bet. Less party loyalty among this group by far than any other category. They are rebels and they do not like incumbents. Do they want new faces in government? Same story. Now this gives these people a very different flavor in my opinion from partisan Republicans. The definition of a partisan is this is someone who will vote for you even when they think you're wrong. That's your base. It's the classic definition. These guys are saying we are not part of the Republican base. At least that's what they were saying in 2010. And that makes for a very different political dynamic since they're not loyal Republicans and since they don't like compromise. If you're a Republican incumbent, you're very scared of these people. You cannot make a deal on taxes or on a debt limit without really worrying that these guys are going to punish you, and they will. That brings us to the third dimension on which they're different, from which I don't have a chart, uh, but which David has illustrated admirably, which is they've made a collective strategic decision to prioritize spending over everything else. They may disagree on many other things, but they don't disagree on spending, and they have made, and I would argue this is a strategic decision. When I talked to Tea Party leaders, they said, this is a strategy. They said conservative leaders, Republican leaders especially, have used social issues like abortions and gay marriage as a distraction to divide us and to distract us while they made government bigger. And guess what? We're not falling for that anymore. In my opinion, their analysis of what Republicans were doing was largely right. And in fact, they're not falling for it any before. Uh, not falling for it anymore. So in Jonathan Haidt's terms, what we have here is not a movement made up of people who agree with, with all of, of one another or who have only one flavor ideologically, but who have come together in nonetheless a one flavor movement, who are very independent in their voting patterns in that movement, not particularly partisan and quite hostile to the establishment. This gives them a whole lot of potency in the political process. And they will continue, in my opinion, to have quite a good deal of potency as long as they can sustain 
their focus, their narrowness, their determination, and their independence. Those things are all very, very hard to sustain. It is hard to stay that focused when your membership is as divided as Tea Partiers fundamentally are, when in the view of millions of them there are lots and lots of babies being murdered in America. Um, it's hard to, uh, to maintain the kind of discipline that they've showed, and the Republicans are working as hard as they possibly can to bring in these folks and turn them into loyal members of the Republican base. Very hard to stay outside the Republican machine forever because the Republicans have a lot of money, a lot of political power, a lot of institutional clout in things like primaries and voting rules, and a lot of ways they can make Tea Partiers' life difficult and a lot of ways they can make it quite attractive to become a member of the group, especially if they win the election. If I had to predict, I'd say that the Tea Party movement will be a two to five year movement in terms of its maximum potency. It'll lose its edge, as many movements do. But I'd also say that I don't remember having seen anything quite like this before. Occupy, Wall Street, moveon.org, you know, they have some similarities, but I've never seen anything with quite this combination of independence and uh, ideological discipline. So I'm really not willing to hazard a prediction on how long the Tea Partiers will be around. I will say, however, that they are not a conventional group or movement. Thanks, John. Uh, our fourth speaker and final speaker today will be Emily McClintock Evans, who uh, Eakins, who is the director of polling for the Reason Foundation, where she leads the Reason Rupe poll uh, and public opinion research project. Um, Emily's research focuses primarily on American politics, including public opinion, the Tea Party movement, survey methodology, and political economy. In particular, Emily studies how individuals' expectations of their own economic future shape their political uh, behavior and attitudes toward government. She's discussed her research on Fox News, Fox Business, CNBC, and her research has appeared in a number of leading national uh, publications. And I'm also proud to say she's a part-time uh, colleague here at the Cato Institute. Emily? Thank you, John, for that gracious introduction. Oh, good. I was worried about this. <laughs> okay. So today I would like to make two points. Um, we've made lots of different points today, and there are two um, issues that I found have been overlooked by academics, journalists, and political pundits alike. And I think this is a great time to uh, kind of set the record straight um, from what I found in my research of the Tea Party movement um, as part of my dissertation research. Um, I got in my car, drove around the country, and interviewed local level Tea Party leaders um, in local diners and restaurants. We sat down. Um, I went to Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Utah, California, and um, it was surprising how similar the world views of these Tea Partiers were, and yet so distinct from um, my academic colleagues at UCLA, where I've been getting my PhD. Um, so the first point I'd like to make, one thing that sets the Tea Party apart um, from many others is they have a very uh, traditional view of the American dream, a Tocquevillian view, um, if you will. So essentially that they have this view that America is the land of opportunities and that all people, regardless of backgrounds, can succeed. Now this is not to say that, you know, that other Americans don't have this view, but they have this belief even more so. And this permeates 
how they answer poll questions and also helps explain a lot of their other policy positions that other people have a hard time understanding. So let's go through this. Um, you often, so these are some signs I took at a Washington DC Tea Party protest um, on, here by the Capitol. Um, and you, you often see signs like this. Don't spread my wealth, spread my worth, work ethic. Um, stop punishing success and rewarding failure. Um, this is all part of a common theme throughout the Tea Party. Um, and for this to make sense, I thought we should go to some polling data. Um, now, be prepared. I'm going to show you a bunch of numbers um, that uh, I have conducted with the Reason Root poll that I direct at the Reason Foundation, um, where I actually had an opportunity to ask uh, Americans in general, but also Tea Partiers, um, about how they perceive the fairness of the American system, about opportunities in America. And you actually see they are distinct from most um, other people who do not self-identify with the Tea Party. Here we see 71% of Tea Party supporters think that all Americans have an equal opportunity to succeed, compared to a majority, but still significantly less, 55% of non-Tea Party supporters. We asked about income inequality in the system as, a, as part of the economic system. Is this an acceptable part of the system, or is, or is this a problem that we need to address? 68% of Tea Partiers um, say that it's an acceptable part of the system compared to a little less than half of everybody else. We asked about, given this income inequality that does exist, is it the responsibility of government to reduce these income differences or not? Um, here we see a very huge difference. 80% of Tea Partiers um, do not believe it is the role of government to redistribute wealth. Um, now this makes sense if you understand their other assumptions, that if this is a land, a place of equal opportunities for all people regardless of background, um, it, it reasons why they might also think that it is not the responsibility of government to redistribute wealth. This is where we see probably the most striking difference. We asked about, um, for those um, in this country who are poor, how good of a chance do they have for escaping poverty? This is a striking difference. 57% of Tea Partiers think that um, these poor individuals have a um, very good chance of escaping poverty, compared to only 33% of non-Tea Party supporters. Um, in fact, you know, non-Tea Party supporters, 60% uh, of them think that the poor have very little chance of escaping poverty. This was so striking, I wanted to delve in a little deeper into the data um, and look at just different groups here. We have Republicans that are not Tea Partiers and not Republicans, Tea Party supporters and Libertarians. You see that almost everyone, um, Republicans, Libertarians, Democrats, and others, uh, do not think that the poor have a very good chance of escaping from poverty. But Tea Partiers think they do. One of the reasons they may feel this way is we asked essentially about the, the, the question of zero sum. Um, with, uh, with an economy, can wealth grow enough for everyone, or does the wealth of one person mean there's less wealth for, uh, for everybody else? Um, and we see that two-thirds of Tea Partiers think that wealth can grow enough for everyone. Less than half of everybody else agree. Instead, a majority of everyone else when they think one person gets wealthy, that necessarily means that someone else has gotten poorer. Now, here, most Americans agree that hard work is ultimately the most important um, uh, 
trait in order to achieve success rather than luck or, or, or help from other people. But still, you still see a difference between Tea Partiers. Um, we actually, I, I've added in here Tea Party activists. This is a, an, an entrance poll that David and I conducted back in October of 2010. I mean, 97%, I mean, basically, this is margin of error we're talking about. <laughs> Essentially, everybody there thought hard work is what is, is, what is most important for determining success. Um, However, for non-Tea Party supporters, although still 79% is overwhelming, um, there's still a sizable uh, percentage that also think that luck and help from other people is ultimately what matters most. So in sum, I think that this, uh, I should probably leave it there. Um, in sum, this shows you that the Tea Party members have a very unique view about upward economic mobility in, this, in, in, in our country. When I did my interviews with these individuals, a common theme kept coming up. Almost the same words were being used. I'm not sure if someone was using it on a talk show. I don't know exactly what explains it. But people would say, Emily, what I'm worried about most um, is losing the thing that makes America great. And I said, OK, well, what is that? What, what is, you know, in your opinion, what makes America great? And they would say, America is the place where you can be whatever it is you want to be. Now, they often would caveat this and, and point out that that is no guarantee of success. Actually, a lot of them had started businesses that had failed. Um, but they also said that what it does mean is it's a guarantee of opportunity to try, to try to succeed, to try and perhaps fail. Um, and that this ideology I had not really encountered with any of the other groups that I have studied in my own uh, professional research. Understanding this about the Tea Party helps explain a lot of their other positions, especially their strong economic conservatism, their fiscal conservatism. If you have a view that things are generally fair, that we work in a meritocracy, that hard work pays off, then uh, income redistribution may seem less necessary or even justified. The second point I'd like to make today is about Medicare. I hear this constantly um, with my research of the Tea Party movement. People will often bring up signs that look something like this. Um, Kate Zernicki uh, first documented this um, in one of the Tea Party rallies that she attended, where a woman had a sign that says, get your government hands off my Medicare. Um, this has led to a, uh, a thesis, an emerging thesis within the, within the academic world that suggests that the Tea Party is, in fact, a lover of big government, um, but only big government programs that benefit them. And that, in a sense, it's selfishness. Rather, instead of wanting big government programs for all, it's just big government programs for um, them personally. Um, but this didn't seem to comport with what I was observing in my interviews with the Tea Party and also just looking at the, at the, uh, the polling data itself. So with the Reason Root poll, we decided to delve a, delve a little bit deeper into this issue to understand how Tea Partiers uh, perceive and how do they conceive of entitlement programs in the United States. So we first asked about responsibility. Um, who is primarily responsible for sa saving for retirement? 72% of Tea Partiers thought that um, individuals should be primarily responsible for saving for retirement, compared to 56%, still a majority, with 56% of non-Tea Party supporters. 
We also asked about Medicare, um, slightly less, but still 59% of Tea Partiers also thought individuals should be primarily responsible for saving for paying for health insurance when they're retired. We asked them about opting out of, social, of, of, so, of entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, and overwhelmingly, you know, almost uh, three-fourths of Tea Partiers think this is fine. Um, less than half of everybody else agree. Um, the same is true of Medicare. Um, so this led me to wonder how, what um, explains the, the polling data out there that shows that Tea Partiers are unwilling to cut Social Security and Medicare in order to balance the budget. Everybody knows that the main drivers of our, uh, of our future and uh, of our future budget deficits will be the result of our entitlement programs unless we change them. So why wouldn't it be this, the movement that says they are against big government spending, why would they oppose um, reducing government spending for Social Security and Medicare? So we decided to ask the question like everybody else asked, um, would you be willing to have your current or future Social Security benefits um, reduced as part of a plan to balance the federal budget and or ensure Social Security remains in place for future retirees? You see that a majority of Tea Partiers say no. 52% as do non-Tea Party supporters. But one thing that struck me when uh, in my interviews um, and also my other research was that Tea Partiers would talk about Medicare and Social Security as if it were a savings account. They saved this money. Um, it, they sacrificed money today. They delayed consumption that they could have spent today, but instead saved it in a government program, in a government savings account, if you will, um, for, for when they're retired. So we said, okay, well, what would you be willing to accept benef uh, reductions in your benefits if you were still guaranteed to receive at least the amount of money you have contributed into the system? You see the responses flip. Here, um, most Americans and Tea, Party, Tea Partiers, even slightly more so, 65% say yes, they would be willing to accept reductions to their own Social Security benefits if they were guaranteed to at least get their money back. Um, we asked the same thing about Medicare. Um, and when you promise, if you were to promise that they would still get the money that they put in, you see 67% would be open to reforming Medicare, even if that meant cuts, as long as they get their money back. We asked this in an August 2011 poll. Um, so we decided to revisit this last month in our September poll. And we just went straight for it. We asked, would you be willing to accept cuts in your current or future Medicare benefits if you were guaranteed to receive benefits at least equal to the amount of money that you and your employers contribute into the system? And here we find three quarters of Tea Partiers say yes. So often, I think what we were finding in this early polling data where Tea Partiers were reluctant to cut um, Medicare spending, what they were thinking is they were reluctant to have their own savings taken away rather than them thinking of it as a redistributive program in which they wanted to ensure they also received those redistributive payments. Okay, so in sum, although these two points are somewhat just disjointed, I think these are very important points to make and that polling data can help, um, help clarify um, where the Tea Party stands and how it is different 
from uh, those who do not identify with the Tea Party, namely that the Tea Party is very concerned with upward economic mobility, and it continues to be so, which probably explains their strong commitment to fiscal conservatism, um, and also that they are open to entitle uh, entitlement reform, although we may have previously not thought so. Um, so thank you very much, and I think that we'll turn the time over to questions. Indeed, we will. The question and answer section begins now, but let me just go over some ground rules. When I call on you, and <coughs> raise your hand, I'll call on you, uh, please wait until the microphone arrives and speak into it clearly. Uh, you need the microphone so both everyone can hear you throughout the room on our sound system and also for those watching at home on C-SPAN and online. I'd also like to remind at-home viewers that you can submit questions for our panelists via Twitter using the hashtag TPRoots. So let's, let's go to the questions. Uh, the gentleman down front here. You let, yes. <laughs> you always try stuff. You always try stuff, stage me. <laughs> um, my question is um, probably to all four, but it was triggered by Mr. Kirby's response uh, remark that he said uh, he he appeared to be defining libertarians as fiscally conservative and uh, uh, socially. Um, uh, or economically, uh, fiscally um, conservative, socially liberal. Right, you know yes. what I'm trying to say. Um, I find this kind of undermines what libertarians are. To me, libertarians are essentially saying we don't want government coercion. You can have whatever kind of personal beliefs you want. You could agree to live on, you could be someone who likes to live on a co commune, mm -hmm. but if you say, I'm, I'm not going to force other people to live on a commune, that makes you a libertarian. And I, my, my point is that we're, we're really putting um, everybody on the same continuum mm -hmm. by, by describing it this way. In mm -hmm. other words, that libertarians are on the same continuum as conservatives and liberals, mm -hmm. which, which is probably a reason why they, they're not identified as a distinctive group by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think about this criticism? Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely agree with you that libertarians are worried about coercion, um, but I think the socially liberal part might be hanging you up. The questions that we use to define libertarians as uh, socially liberal uh, are questions like, um, do you believe the government should promote traditional values or no particular set of values? And libertarians, by our definition, pick no particular set of values. The government shouldn't be coercing people into those values. So I actually think that's consistent with what you're describing. So socially liberal might be misconstrued as, oh, I like social programs. But actually, I'm talking about more of a moral tolerance position, that I just don't want government kind of messing around with our social space. So it's those two things. It's economic conservatism and sort of government stay out of my, um, my personal life that define libertarians broadly construed in our data. I hope that clarifies. Okay. Well, the gentleman next to him. <laughs> we don't want to start any arguments. Hi. My name is Dick Osborne. Um, when you say fiscally responsible, um, 
I'm a little bit bothered because I think there's a difference between the kind of fiscal responsibility that happens when you keep both spending and taxes low and the kind of, of, of fiscal responsibility that occurs where you, where, you, where you do spend a lot of money, but you raise taxes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think some of these European countries, and, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I had understood, for instance, that in, that in Italy, basically, they, they do have very high taxes, and they hope that that will offset the effects of, of high spending. But um, to, to the extent that I, I am a libertarian, I'm very bothered by the idea that it's, that it's re really responsible to, to raise spending and then steal uh, money from people in order to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a question for whoever wants to answer. <laughs> I mean, Milton Friedman uh, famously described that the real uh, measure of taxation is the level of spending, because spending today is going to have to be paid for with future taxes tomorrow. And I think a lot of Tea parties would probably agree with your characterization that it's not right to, uh, to spend today and pass on the taxes. Either you don't get the spending and you keep the taxes low or, or not, and that might be consistent with the moral intuitions about economic mobility that you're, you're seeing. Yes, um, and we also see in the data that Tea Partiers, even more than other groups, are especially sensitive to the issue of government spending because they see it as future taxation. Um, now, some people disagree with this. They don't think that you know, uh, deficit spending um, uh, signals to people that there will be future taxes coming down the line. But Tea Partiers do seem to see this, and they primarily are found in the um, in part of the income distribution that research shows are they're very sensitive to tax increases because they feel it differently. Um, it's a little harder for them to pay extra taxes than it is for Mr. Buffett, um, but they're actually paying more, such that they're getting they're getting less than they're paying in in terms of redistribution. And that's exactly where Tea Partiers fall, generally speaking. And so that's one reason why they're so especially averse to government spending. There was a. Uh Former chairman of the Cato Institute, alas, he, uh, he died recently, a marvelous man named Bill Niskanen, uh, who did research, as other people have done, and found what I believe is, others here would certainly dispute this, but I think the evidence conclusively shows that people who want to cut taxes all the time are big government's best friend, because they're discounting the apparent price of government, and when, when you put something on sale, people demand more of it. The best way to restrain the size of government is to force a balanced budget, which means make people pay for it. Uh, and that means raise taxes when necessary as a way to restrain spending. And in fact, the record shows that this is what works better in the U.S. However, having put that very contentious idea on the table for all you people to tear to shreds, the reason I bring it up is that um, I couldn't find polling data on this. But when I, uh, when I went out and talked to, to Tea Party people, I would ask them point blank, so what if you could get very large reductions in spending and the price of that were some modest increase in taxes? Would you take that? You get smaller deficits and smaller government on net as a result. And they all said no. Uh, they were more allergic to raising taxes than they were to uh, having the government grow, which I thought was surprising. You saw that same dynamic, by the way, in the Republican primary debate. I think that's a great point. Um, I actually haven't seen polling data, but in my interviews, this also came up. 
Um, and typically what was shown, um, so one person in particular, Mark Meckler, said that he actually would favor, um, you know, some sort of compromise there if it were guaranteed that the, ta- that the ta- uh, excuse me, the spending decreases would actually go into effect. And that typically the reluctance to any kind of tax increase at all was because um, experience had suggested to them that tax increases do go into effect, but spending increases tend to somehow get, um, you know, strange accounting tricks happen and they don't actually seem to materialize. Um, so it would be interesting if you were somehow able to pose the question where it was credible that you credibly actually cut spending, um, whether or not Tea Partiers would then favor some tax increases, I think it would probably be somewhat mixed. Gentleman in the third row from the front here, two in, right here. Wait for the mic, please. Um, hi, I think this is a question to all of you. Would you please. identify yourself, please? Oh, sorry, uh, Will Martindale, um, AARP. I had a question because um, I know a lot of friends, I'm not going to speak to my own beliefs, but a lot of my friends who really jumped on the Ron, Ron Paul revolution bandwagon uh, really jumped on largely because of lo- a lot of the, uh, the civil liberties and anti-war rhetoric as opposed to some of the more tax-related issues because at our age we aren't really getting taxed either way. Um, and I was just wondering if that has a large input in your definition of what a libertarian is and what that goes into as far as uh, whether those issues, uh, things such as the Patriot Act or uh, indefinite detention things, if those are issues that are worried about by libertarians or Tea Partiers. Um. Well, to answer your question, we, we haven't used uh, issue questions like the Patriot Act to de- define libertarians. And the reason why we do is I sort of uh, share uh, John's instinct that the sort of moral background questions are actually probably more influential in the way people think than knowledge of the issues. A lot of people don't really know much about the issues, so it can be confusing if you use those questions. But if you use background belief questions, you'll find that libertarians do um, care more about civil liberties uh, and Tea Party libertarians included than conservatives. Um, there was one question about closing Guantanamo uh, Bay, and it was surprising how many libertarian Tea Partiers were willing to accept that versus uh, conservatives who were much more willing to keep it open. Uh, so that gives you one example of an issue that kind of falls out from that libertarian reasoning um, that's just sort of surprising. Yeah. Gentlemen, right here, the, the one inside. Second from the left, and we'll get to the other person. Jim Harper with the Cato Institute. Um, Probably mostly for Emily, but I'd be happy to hear anyone's observations. When I debate with my friends on the left about regulation, uh, they often uh, talk using a mental model that if this time we elect the right people, and if this time the regulators do it right, we'll actually come up with something good. And I can say, you know, you've, you've been going after that for 40 years now, it hasn't happened. But what, I, but what I recognize is an aspirational model that they're using to frame their thinking. And I wonder, Emily, if, if you're seeing a lot of that in, in the answers you got to some of your questions uh, as far as escaping poverty and, um, and being anything you want to be. Do you think that they think literally that people can escape poverty and that statistically someone you know, is likely to move up in the United States? Or, is that, or are they being aspirational when they answer those questions? And what, what's the kind of thinking that you're seeing about among mm-hmm. Tea Partiers on those things. 
I, I'm really glad you asked this question because it gives me an opportunity to clarify. Um, so there's when we talk about opportunity, who doesn't like the word opportunity? And what, what politician doesn't want and advocate for opportunity? Um, but how opportunity is operationalized is different for different types of people. Um, so, for instance, one person would operationalize opportunity as being, if we were all to think of, you know, think of um, us all starting up on the same platform. So that means, you know, equal, somewhat equalized access to healthcare and education, meaning we start at roughly the same place so that we have an equal chance, equal opportunity to succeed. Um, these folks would say, this isn't about equal results, it's just about starting equally. Um, but tea parties aren't talking about that, the platform. They're talking about, if you were to imagine a ladder, um, they're thinking about the ladder of upward economic mobility. So it's not about where you start, it's about what that ladder is like for every person. Um, so they want that ladder of opportunity to be equal to all people, um, which means you know equality before the law. People are treated equally. Um, and typically, equalizing the platforms at wh where you begin and keeping that equal ladder for everyone, they don't tend to go well together. And so that's where you get some of this, uh, this uh, conflict. Um, so tea partiers would care a lot about how, um, how that ladder works for people. Um, most of them would not think that um, someone in poverty could, you know, that they would all necessarily become as, you know, extraordinarily wealthy. But they would think that they could get to a point where they're not struggling, perhaps. Um, and that they have the that almost the opportunity to try is what matters most. And I think that there is some basic expectation that although you might not be as wealthy as Bill Gates, there is some sort of expectation of a, a level of uh, being comfortable. I, I would just add that um, we, we tend to look at uh, history and what's going on in our country in terms of a, a moral narrative. We tell stories that reach back into the past and explain how we got to the present. And there are clear good guys and bad guys. I mean, it's almost like a child's cartoon. And on the left, the bad guys are especially the big business interests, the people who are raping and pillaging the environment and foisting their externalities on the poor. And by golly, if we can just get the cops in on them, they'll control them. So we need, you know, we need to get the right regulators, and then finally we'll get those bad guys. And my sense from, from what I've learned from Emily and David um, is that uh, uh, among the Tea Partiers, well, there's a, 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 it's a very moralistic worldview, and there's good and evil, as there is with every group. Uh, but I think one thing we should talk about is the role of the poor as being the bad guys, um, the, the certain groups of poor or uh, um, who demanded these entitlement programs. You know, we saw this in the Romney 47% comments, um, the sense that uh, 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 the American dream is dying because people have demanded entitlement programs that sap the will to work that are basically, in a sense, they're pushing away that ladder that Emily talked about, saying, we don't want the ladder. We want to sit here. So I don't know, Emily, is that, I mean, what, who, is, who is evil in the Tea Party moral narrative? Well, I think it actually goes to your point, um, the concept that you've actually put forth of proportionality, which is one of your moral foundations, which essentially proportionality is that con actions and consequences should be correlated so that if you make good decisions and you work hard, you're rewarded, and if you make bad decisions and uh, you don't work as hard, you're not rewarded. That, I think, for the Tea Party especially was the bad guy. Um, I think there's lots of you know, it's debatable who else could be included in that. But with the onset of the financial crisis, you know, bailout for banks, bailout for car companies, assistance to homeowners facing foreclosure, stimulus, all of these things 
completely infringe on this underlying moral foundation of proportionality, which is central to what I was talking about, their idea of the, uh, of the American dream. They think that proportionality is absolutely essential for people to have the freedom to try. Um, and I think that, right, you know, with, with, the, with TARP, especially in the financial crisis, that was the enemy. Gentleman next to Jim Harper. Ramon Bueller with the uh, Madison Coalition. Um, I saw in your polling this enormous frustration with politicians in general and the Tea Party. And I wonder if anybody on the panel has seen a, uh, any indication that Tea Party people or Republican leaners are interested in the idea of empowering states and making politicians in Washington <coughs> accountable to states arguably as the authors of the Constitution intended, as a solution to some of these problems of growing government power and, and seemingly uncontrollable uh, government borrowing? I heard that all the time, actually. Uh, the question was the interest in devolving issues back to the states. That was a major theme among some Tea Partiers I talked to, but it was also a source of tension inside the movement because the more traditional conservatives don't want to go there. They're worried that the states will make the wrong choices and do what Massachusetts did with health care. So they actually want a top-down, um, more or less libertarian, small government policy. This is an area where, where I found very little agreement, actually. You guys may have more um, granularity on that, though. There was one sort of side issue that was really popular in the Tea Party that, that speaks to this, and that was a direct election of senators. Yeah, the 17th Amendment. 17th Amendment. Um, you know, that's sort of one of those surprising pieces of history where states had more control over who their senators were in the past, and this was thought of as potential panacea for many cures, or ma many uh, politicians who were, were kind of straying from, from state interests. And so there was certainly in 2010 a lot of interest and talk about the 17th Amendment. Let me just follow on to that. Uh, during 2010 and afterwards, very often, and just this summer I heard someone say to me that the essence of the Tea Party was the Constitution and back to the Constitution. Does Do anyone have, or any of you have any comments on that? Are they really about a kind of originalist notion of the Constitution and returning to it, or is that just mm -hmm. sort of political rhetoric? They're much more about the Declaration of Independence. Um, in my view, the 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 single most important foundation of the Constitution is compromise. It's a compromise-forcing document. That's what Madison was all about. Jefferson, the patron saint of Cato, was not even in the country at the time, and Hamilton, the patron saint of liberal Democrats, just popped in for a visit. Um, these guys are hostile to compromise, and in that sense, I think they're, they're in some sense hostile to the most important tenet of the Constitution. They, they do believe, when I talk to them... Um, a very strong premise is returning government to the people, by which they mean bringing it closer to us. They see it as co-opted by alien forces, interest groups in Washington. In that sense, it's not different from other populist narratives. Um, and, and that's the sense in which I see them as closer to the spirit of, of Jefferson's declaration. I, I would add that a basic principle of moral psychology is that uh, morality binds and blinds. So to get any movement together, it helps to ha you know, have a flag that you can sort of salute and circle around, and then you need, you need a fight song, you need some sacred objects, you need a history with you know, the, the golden days and things used to be better. 
And uh, so my sense of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Founding Fathers are playing this role in the Tea Party. But here's where I think the distinction between the libertarians and and the conservatives might be very helpful. Uh, Conservative moral narratives tend to be stories of decline, that there was this golden age once. Uh, Liberal stories tend to be everything was always terrible and oppressive and we're fighting to break free against the evil forces of patriarchy. Um, But it, it strikes me that worshiping the Constitution is something that both libertarians and conservatives can do for different reasons. Liber- uh, conservatives would love it in part just because looking back uh, several centuries to a time when things were better, nobler, purer, uh, so just the simple age of it, um, there's no obligation to actually read it or, or be, you know, take, take, if, you're sacralized, if you're sacralizing something, you don't need to, to do careful scholarship on it and, and worship the thing as it actually is. You can worship the idealization of it. And of course, the same thing happens on the, on the left. I mean, people, you know, you, you worship your idealization of Martin Luther King, your idealization of anybody. Uh, but I think the Constitution and the, the founding documents play interesting roles. Do you think that the Constitution plays a different role for the libertarian Tea Partiers and the conservative Tea Partiers? Well, I, I completely agree with, what, with your assessment right there. In my interviews, I heard two different reasons for why the Constitution was so important. As you can imagine, most of them brought it up on their own, the Constitution. And I heard two different explanations for why the Constitution was so important. And one uh, fits with the conservative narrative. Um, And it was almost more of a cultural thing. It is part of us. um, And that that makes it good. Um, But then I heard another narrative, which was more um, kind of a... They would explain to me um, kind of nuts and bolts, more mechanical. Um, the Constitution uh, limits what the, the, the centralized powers can do, which gives individuals uh, more autonomy to do X. And, you know, it was more nuts and, nuts and bolts rather than, I mean, clearly the other, the other uh, explanation would be more that it's good because it's the Constitution. And so I clearly uh, related better to the more nuts and bolts side of it. Um, but when I when I saw those two um, stories emerging, I realized that they did correlate quite well with the libertarian half and the conservative half of the Tea Party. Uh, gentleman in the middle here. <laughs> it's hard to decide which mic. Dale Johnson, a freelance writer. Uh, question to the longevity. Uh, I don't see this group of people going away. Uh, what I see is if the Republicans win and DeMint and uh, Rand Paul are successful in moving the Republicans in a libertarian direction, I could see a lot of the Tea Partiers peeling off and going home to the Republican Party. But if uh, Mitt Romney wins and moves in a Massachusetts direction where he's compromising, and doing the the big government conservatism uh, to to govern, I see it taking off. And especially if the Democrats win and continue a trillion dollar deficits, that the the Tea Party is just going to grow. So I'm not sure in any circumstance I really see a five-year lifespan on it. Well, I I distinguish between um, the durability of the sentiments and the individuals and the durability of the movement as an independent movement. And that, as you say, I think does depend to some extent on what Republicans do. It will be interesting to see if Mitt Romney is elected, if he governs as the Mitt Romney of the primaries, this group will be quite, will be fairly pleased, though they're very hard to please. Their standards are very high, and if he ever compromises, they'll whack him. If he governs as the Mitt Romney of the debates, 
boy, we're talking George W. Bush um, territory or, or worse. You know, if the first thing he does is make a compromise with the Democrats, uh, boy, you know, watch out. Um, when I talk to them about this, um, at least the, the people in, in relative leadership roles, David, actually, David Kirby should talk about this too, but they were very well aware that the Republican Party wants to co-opt them. And their view is we got suckered before by being co-opted by a party. That leads to bigger government. We are going to stay outside, and we're going to keep a close eye on them, so we're always prepared to whack them. That's what they said. Now, that's very hard to do. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, Tea Partiers have been no fan of, of Mitt Romney, and many Tea Partiers look at the Senate as sort of an insurance policy. Now, there's a lot of state Senate battles where Rand Paul-like candidates are, uh, are running, and if they can win sort of a Tea Party caucus in the Senate, certainly Freedom Works strategy, uh, then they can only put bills on uh, Romney's desk uh, that would force his hand. He wouldn't veto them, but he probably wouldn't, wouldn't drive it as far as, uh, as those folks. So the budget would look more like what Rand Paul proposes or Mike Lee proposes versus what Romney left his own devices would propose. So I definitely think the Tea Partiers are not going to fall for the same trick twice and uh, are going to keep a very close eye on a Romney administration if it, if it turns out that way. And to the extent that any kind of social movement can create institutions um, that are durable, the longer they will last. Um, I think this is one problem with Occupy Wall Street is we didn't see the same type of uh, really local level where they tried to um, kind of take over local level offices. This is, excuse me, the Tea Party did this, Occupy Wall Street. I did not see the same kind of activity. The Tea Party went at very local levels. A lot of times you, you didn't even see it. I mean, the fact that Ted Cruz out of, uh, out of Texas won the Republican uh, nomination is, is because of their local Tea Party groups that mobilized at the very local level, kind of a micro level be, uh, below the radar. Even polls um, of the state of Texas showed that his uh, – uh, his opponent, David Dewhurst, uh, was leading in the polls, um, but then came election day and Ted Cruz swept. Um, and one reason was because of those institutions that had been created that were durable. However, if those institutions have not been set up in other places, which they haven't, um, I don't know exactly where they have and where they haven't, but where they haven't, I would suspect to see a waning of uh, you know Tea Party activity. But even if people aren't organizing, that doesn't mean the sentiment isn't there. Um, this question about are you a supporter of the Tea Party movement is almost similar to are you a supporter of the Occupy Wall Street movement. It's a way for people to identify kind of a unique set of views that we don't get by just saying are you a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or libertarian or whatever. Um, I think that will still continue to be useful. Emily has already uh, answered in part one of the questions uh, that we received from uh, at-home viewers via Twitter, and I want to pose it to the other the people. That is the differences and similarities between Tea Party activists and the Occupy movement. The questioner notes that both groups distrust current political systems, and that puts us right in John Hyde's territory, social psychology distrust of the system. But anyone else that has a comment about the differences or similarities? Chuck, I'll start. Uh, so Emily and I visited uh, Occupy together uh, about a year ago. <clears throat> this Emily? Yes. Oh. Yes. Um, and um, uh, in terms of the moral foundations that I presented, uh, the, the two groups are extremely different. They're both populist Groups, they're both skeptical of, uh, really critical of crony capitalism. They could make common cause on a number of, of, of substantive issues, uh, but their styles could not be more different. And I think the clearest way to say it is 
um, the three moral foundations that uh, are about binding groups together, uh, so that's group loyalty, respect for authority, and a sense of sanctity or purity. Those are the three that the social conservatives have, which both the libertarians and the liberals do not. And what this means is that uh, when a group is under threat, a group is under attack, these are really useful foundations. You circle the wagons, it's you know, one for all, all for one, hang in there, fight them off. Um, I think the Tea Party has that, or at least the social conservatives in the, in the Tea Party have those virtues, those moral foundations. <clears throat> what we saw at Occupy um, was they are so anti-hierarchical uh, uh, and they are also so opposed to sort of group loyalty and boundaries and exclusion the left tends to be very focused on inclusion. So if you're not going to discriminate and keep some people out and keep some people in, and you're not going to have authority and structure, and you try to have level, they're very uh, opposed to the word hierarchy, very into uh, was it horizontal um, uh, structures. They don't work very well. Um, it's, 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 uh, the, the, the discussions that we saw, a lot of them devolve into arguments about procedure and people speaking out of turn. I mean, it's just very hard if you, if you don't have some, uh, some sense of authority and discipline. So I think the two structures organizationally are extremely different. And this, you know, as, as Emily said, um, you know, the Tea Party, I mean, the Occupy folks just had a lot more trouble creating durable structures that could then move the movement out of reflection and discussion and out into actually affecting the world. They're very similar in terms of the fundamental moral narrative, I think, which is that you've got a force in America that's perverting and corrupting the country. They obviously disagree about what that is. Tea Partiers say it's government, and Occupy Wall Street says it's a certain type of unbridled capitalism. But there is, there is a, a similarity in the, the populist narratives. A very important difference, uh, which obviously politicians are very aware of, is the Tea Party is distinguished by having very early made a co collective strategic decision to narrow their focus. They know what they want, um, and they know what they don't want. Occupy got together, and they still don't know what they want. And in politics, you don't get what you want if you don't know what you want. One final question from at home, and I think David and Emily have data that go to this. They w uh, a person would like to know uh, via Twitter, whether uh, the Tea Party was more libertarian when it started, and if that's so, why they might have changed. Yeah. Uh, I didn't show this slide, uh, but Emily and I took uh, 12 polls between 2010 and 2012 and tried to see what percentage of libertarians support in each one of those polls, and then we averaged out a trend. And what you found is uh, the Tea Party starting in 2010 had the highest percentage of libertarians who were part of it, it was sort of 50-50, and then over time, and through 2011, it declined about 10, 12 percentage points and then started to come back in 2012. So in other words, a lot of libertarians, as I was trying to describe, uh, got a little frustrated when other people got involved. Uh, you, you described their kind of moral penchant for, uh, for not being very cooperative uh, with others. Uh, they don't like their parents very much. Uh, they certainly didn't, <laughs> like, uh, certainly didn't like these other people getting involved in their thing. And so some of them took their marbles and went home. At least that's what the data seems to show. But interestingly, they seemed to come back in 2012. Uh, maybe this was in part because the Ron Paul campaign sort of got, mm. got up going in force. Um, you know, it started from there. It sort of began to get, get back to its roots there. And actually, I think this is an interesting question about longevity is where do these Ron Paul people go? Now that Ron Paul has retired, uh, some of them kind of started in the Tea Party they might have left the Tea Party, now they're back in. And um, to what extent does that energy 
continue to get combined with the Tea Party and maybe make a brand that's even bigger or broader than the Tea Party that includes all freedom activists, Ron Pollers, Tea Party or social conservatives uh, in a kind of big mashup or, or what? It's sort of an open question of exactly how that goes. Um, the one interesting side point that I didn't mention is uh, a lot of scholars will look at the Tea Party and say it's conservative, but one interesting implication of this, of this trend, this low point, is that if you pick 2011 as the time that you're going to study the Tea Party, you might actually be studying it at a low point of libertarian participation. So you might be fooled into thinking that it's a very conservative-leaning uh, group because that's what the data shows. But in fact, if you look at the whole trend from the very beginning all the way through 2012, you see quite clearly the ebb and flow of libertarian participation. On that note, I'd like to thank everyone for coming. I'd like to thank our authors, uh, David and Emily, for the very fine hard work they put into this. And I would like to thank what we've come to know as the two Johns for being the commentator today. And I would like to invite everyone out into the lobby level here for a reception. And if you're looking for a restroom, they're on the second floor. Look for the yellow stripe. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.